So hard to believe that it's a Friday in August and next week many schools in our region will have students showing up for the new school year. When I was a kid, we always took our vacation in the third week of August, but that's because we hewed to the rule that school was not allowed to begin before Labor Day. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Courtney Estafi. We're here to close out the week of news, and we start with J.D. Vance. Courtney, does he believe in Bigfoot? I mean, talk about conspiracy theories. What is Senator J.D. Vance saying he sees in collusion in correspondence he has received from some colleges he has been questioning about affirmative action? Yeah, the senator is suspicious after he received similarly worded responses from nine different colleges and universities that were a response to his inquiry in July about their affirmative action policies. And that was in the wake of the Supreme Court decision, uh, you know, striking down affirmative action for college admissions. And so Vance on Thursday, I guess, unnerved by these similarly worded letters, sent a letter to the Federal Trade Commission asking them to examine collusion between these universities for these similarly worded responses. He, Vance, he told the FCC he was surprised that none of the institutions responded to him in, quote, good faith, but instead sent, quote, generalized and dismissive statements. And he found those similar statements to be just too uncannily similar. He said all the letters received nearly were on the same day. He said each school gave more or less identical phrasing when they promised to comply with that SCOTUS decision. And, and this applies to all eight Ivy League schools and Ohio's Oberlin and Kenyon colleges. This is why words matter. You don't throw around a word like collusion. Collusion is what companies do if they want to illegally price control. What happened here, I'm sure, is he sent out his wacky request for information. They're an industry. They probably have chat boards. They go, hey, what are you going to do? I mean, what do you, how do you respond to this? I don't know. We're just going to send something that says, yeah, we're going to participate. We're going to do what we have to do. Yeah, sounds good. Uh, we'll all do that. And that's not collusion. That's answering stupid questions with a, a halfway decent response. Any industry does this. I mean, it's it's every industry talks to each other about how to deal with challenges facing their industry. I mean, how many conversations did the news industry have about trying to control racist, hateful comments before most of them shut their comments down? How is that collusion? There's nothing illegal about talking to each other about how to respond to an unprecedented request. Yeah. And, you know, I think then we'll go a little further down the rabbit hole with Vance here. So he's initially talking about, right, this this coordination of, of these colleges' response to him. But then further in his letter to the FCC, he kind of brings up how this could maybe be problematic in other ways, but it's not like linked to anything. So like he, he brought up how a lot of the letter recipients are already embroiled in antitrust legislation or litigation over their financial aid and admissions policies. And he, he seemed to suggest here that the FTC study collusive behavior like more broadly between them. He said, you know, coordinating the response to a senator's letter is one thing, but coordinating admissions policies in the wake of the Supreme Court ruling is another. And, and then he brought up, you know, essentially concerns about 
if these colleges are coordinating their admissions policies now in response to that SCOTUS decision. So he, it seemed like he's particularly concerned in how these colleges are, are going about maintaining a racially diverse student body now that affirmative action's out the door. And, and I guess he was concerned that they may be tempted to jointly come up with new policies but again, that kind of goes back to your point, Chris. Right, I think, that's what you do. Right. You try, look, this is unprecedented. Their policies have been thrown out. They're trying to figure out the path forward. So, of course, they're talking to each other. Look, go back to when we had sane senators like uh, John Glenn and George Voinovich. If they put out a letter like this, say they had the same concern, and they put out a letter like this, and they were unsatisfied with the college response, they wouldn't have used the word collusion and called for a big investigation. They would have written courteous letters back saying, hey, that's not exactly what I was looking for. You sent me generalities, so let me ask you some specific questions. I'm trying to make sure we understand what's happening in response to this unprecedented decision. They would have done it with great courtesy. They would have given the schools a chance to comply. They might have called some of them and said, hey, look, don't don't bamboozle. I'm looking for specific information. I don't want to have a hearing about this, but help us out here. And that would have led to proper communication. Instead, the schools know that he's got blood dripping from his fangs here. He wants to rip them apart. So they're talking to each other saying, what's the best way to go forward here? If we say the wrong thing, he's going to come out with a saber and slashes to bits. This is stupid. I mean, it's just, this is not the way public policy should occur. If he's curious about what they're doing or suspicious, there should be courteous communication to try and get to the bottom of it, not attacking them because they're talking to each other like it's some kind of monopolistic behavior. Silly story. You're listening to Today in Ohio. This seems stupid too, with an abortion amendment on the November ballot. Well, what's happening with the lawsuit filed to declare Ohio's heartbeat bill about abortion unconstitutional? It's before the Ohio Supreme Court. Yeah, so it's it's been about a year since a Hamilton County judge put the heartbeat law on hold while he considers arguments in this legal challenge filed by abortion rights groups. Attorney General Dave Yost appealed that decision to keep the law on ice while it plays out in Hamilton County. And the Ohio First District Court of Appeals rejected his appeal. So he took it up with the Ohio Supreme Court back in March. He also wants the court to consider whether the abortion rights groups that sued over the heartbeat law had the legal right to file a case in the first place. So now here we are five months later. The Supreme Court has finally made a move on this case. They've scheduled oral arguments for September 27th. That's just a little more than a month before we go to the polls to vote on the proposal that seeks to enshrine abortion rights into the state constitution. And after Tuesday's election, the likelihood of the Reproductive Rights Amendment passing is far greater, given that it'll only need a simple majority rather than 60% of the vote to pass. So we're all kind of scratching our heads here about why the Supreme Court would suddenly feel moved to action when we're on the eve of this election. Right. It's all going to be moved. And it's almost like they're doing it for politics. We know mm-hmm. that Sharon Kennedy is very political and it's party over the people. Uh, and it, it almost feels like they're trying to get this thing discussed more to try and rally the anti-abortion crowd. But it's really dumb. It's a waste of time. This is all going to be settled in November. Well, so I was wondering, and I wonder what you think about this, if this is setting the stage for the court to take action on the other case that's pending before them related to related to the proposal. I mean, that case filed last month 
asks the Ohio Supreme Court to strike the abortion rights amendment from the November ballot. The argument there is that amendment backers improperly fail, you know, fail to identify which state laws would have to be repealed. And, you know, they say the amendment backers say that's not required by state law. So could it be that the Supreme Court is hearing oral arguments in the Hartby law case because they plan on also ruling that the proposed constitutional amendment can't go before voters? That argument is so specious, though. I I just don't see them upholding it. I mean, the whole history of constitutional amendments in Ohio negates what the antis are trying to say. And this is their second attempt. They already tried to throw it off the ballot another way. Uh, I, I, I don't, I don't see that happening. Look, the other thing is the Supreme Court justices are elected. They saw the results on Tuesday too. If they do something that stupid, they're not going to keep their seats. I mean, Ohio spoke loudly on Tuesday, stop messing around, stop playing games, let the majority decide on abortion. You'd have to be a buffoon if you're on the Supreme Court and you break the rules to take this off the ballot because you're going to be up for re-election yeah, and you will lose. Look what happened with gerrymandering. The people spoke on that too. And look at our maps. Yeah, but they they, ha- they have to run for re-election. If they do that, I think the energized populace, think about the outrage. All these people went to the polls on Tuesday to stop the nonsense. And it could not have been more vocal. Red and blue counties did it. If the Supreme Court played a game like that, yeah, you, you just you're you're guaranteeing a populism in the state to to push back. I don't think they're that dumb. I mean, they are that craven. I just don't think they're that dumb. They want to keep their seats. Hope you're right. <laughs> yes, and why? You're listening to Today in Ohio. Conservatives in Ohio have forgotten what it's like to lose an election, it seems. Lisa, is that why they are feeding in each other? feeding on each other in a finger-pointing contest on who's to blame for the failure of issue one. Andrew wrote a terrific story about this. Yes, let the scapegoating begin and pop some popcorn because it's going to get exciting. So there was a lot of, you know, a lot of blame to go around. Um, the, the fingers pointed in many different directions, kind of like a circular firing squad. But some of the people who got blame from the state GOP was Governor Mike DeWine. He was criticized for not being more visible in his support of issue one. A conservative radio host in Columbus, Bruce Hooley, said, you're a pathetic waste as a pro-life leader and are you still alive? Well, DeWine's spokesman, Dan Tierney, says, well, if you think the governor snowballed issue one, I have some land in Lake Erie to sell you. Another one, a big one, was the Ohio Chamber of Commerce. They were blamed for pushing signature requirements as a condition for their endorsement of Issue 1, and those requirements would have meant all 88 counties would have had to have signatures for this. Um, they were. He was criticized by anti-vaxxers who were trying to amend the Constitution because they don't want that signature requirement because they want to get on the ballot. Um, the Chamber and the Ohio Farm Bureau wrote cease and desist letters letters to protect women Ohio action fund for using their logos on a mailer that had a drag queen saying that issue one would stop trans ideology in schools. Another one getting blamed is house speaker, Jason Stevens. He was blamed for not pushing through the, you know, the, uh, the, uh, 
issue one in time for the May election. And then Frank LaRose, of course, there was plenty of blame to go for him, or he actually was blaming other people. He said that when the business community thought that this was about abortion, they walked off the battlefield, even though he said that issue one was a priority for business groups. But the Ohio Manufacturers Association, the Ohio Council of Retail Merchants, and the Ohio Business Roundtable stayed neutral on issue one. And then Matt Huffman, let's talk about the senator. He blamed... (laughs) recalcitrant Republicans, Attorney General Betty Montgomery, former Governors John Kasich and Bob Taft for their vociferous opposition to issue one. And he said that the yes campaign was rushed when it failed to clear the House in time for the May ballot. And it also coincided with tensions over the House Speaker vote earlier this year between Jason Stevens and Derek Marin. How is it rushed if it's extended three months beyond when they wanted it? That makes no sense. Right. What they're all failing to recognize is it was bad policy and Ohio got it. This wasn't one where Ohio was a bunch of sheep and they could have been herded over to the other side. People understood what this was about. We made sure of it. And they said, no way. We're not going to give away our power. That's what Matt Huffman and Frank Lewis wanted voters to do. They wanted to give away their power and emasculate themselves. That's what this is about. The, the people to blame are the ones that put it on the ballot in the first place. This is Frank LaRose, Matt Huffman. They championed this. It was bad to do. It was a craven, craven attempt to grab more power. And Ohio said no. It's hilarious, though, the way they're all pointing at each other like they could have won. They couldn't have won. This was crushed. Right, right. And as we said in an earlier podcast, you know, there was a recent poll done in July that showed that one third of Republican voters in Ohio were for or against rather issue one. And 58 percent of people in the state are opposed to abortion restrictions. So... I, I think they're still so drunk with their supermajority power that they created by violating the Constitution that they just can't see reality. I mean, any objective look at what happened Tuesday says the people of Ohio didn't want it. That's what Mike DeWine's saying. He's like, you guys think we could have moved the needle when it lost as big as it lost? I mean, Jaga County, which is cherry red body slam this thing. Mm -hmm. People understood it, especially in Northeast Ohio, because we wrote so many stories and editorials and opinion columns. And and Governor DeWine did say, you know, because Senator Huffman has said he's he's promising to revisit issue one and get it back on the ballot. But DeWine's kind of wary of that promise. He says, I think the people have spoken. Indeed. Yeah, I, I don't see it coming back. Actually, I wouldn't be surprised if there wasn't a move to reduce Matt Huffman's power. He has hurt the Republican Party in this state more than anybody in recent history. And if I were a Republican in the legislature, I'd be looking at him thinking, look what you did. You know, you pushed this thing, you marched us all down the path, and now we're all in danger. I want a new person. Let's have a coup. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We have a real world use for artificial intelligence that might help a group of men avoid an unpleasant treatment for prostate cancer. Courtney, what's it about? Yeah, and the credit here goes to doctors at our very own university hospitals in Cleveland. They've joined forces with a company to develop this AI computer-based test to determine basically which treatments are best for prostate cancer patients. And, and the key piece here is hormone therapy, which is one of three treatments for prostate cancer. And if if folks, you know, get hormone therapy to treat this kind of cancer, 
there's some big side effects. So what the researchers and what the company wanted to do was use this AI test to figure out who is suited for hormone treatment and more importantly, who is not suited for hormone treatment. And and basically what this does is the this AI test brings together, it, it looks at clinical information, digital images of cancerous tissue, which are taken during the biopsy. And then the AI looks at a bunch of different factors here and it figures out who's most suited for hormone therapy and who isn't. And in researchers, as they were getting this going, found that 60% of patients with intermediate prostate cancer would not benefit from that hormone therapy. I, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure I want AI determining my medical fate. I'm still looking at her side-eyed about why she did this, but Layla asked an AI to write my obituary a few months back. And I knew this was going to come up today. Damn right. And it got a bunch of stuff wrong. So, okay, haha, that's funny. But this is about cancer. And I just don't know that the AI has the expertise yet where I want to put my medical fate into its hands. You know, would you, when any of you go that way or would you do your own research and kind of figure it out yourself? I think there's a lot of treatments, you know, for prostate cancer that are less invasive anyway. I mean, you know, and not every prostate cancer patient gets recommended for hormone therapy. I've only known one of the, my friends who are prostate cancer survivors who have gone through androgen ablation is what it's called. Yeah. So yeah, it sounds, it sounds horrible. I mean, it sounds like something I really never want to do, but if an, but if I'm doing it because the AI said, I, I think I would have many, many, many more questions. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, no, I mean, the doctors as part of this said doctors, you know, as they make those decisions now without the help of AI, they, they're not necessarily, you know, human brains aren't computers. They can't weigh all of the factors and bring them all together. That's at least what the doctors involved in this told us. Doctors are frequently wrong when they base their decisions and, and try and do the, the perfect computing in their head. So the doctors say this is really a boon to augment the human brains that are usually determining these treatments. And it's important. Usually folks who go through this can have surgical removal, radiation, or that hormone therapy. But that hormone therapy stops the production of testosterone, which has mm -hmm. a lot of big effects for people's lives. Impotence, you lose muscle mass, and, mm -hmm. and doctors described it as chemical castration. So if this does end up allowing people to avoid that when they don't have to, because now, you know, the doctors told us a lot of times we over and under treat the vast majority of patients. If this helps narrow that, I mean, we, we've seen what science can do for the medical field over the course of, you know, your life, Chris, and, and my life, too. <laughs> and and you got to think that technology will, will, will keep helping inform us in better ways. Yeah, I'm just hoping that the AI is more sophisticated than uh, ChatGBT, which wrote Chris's obituary. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to get better. I mean, it, clearly, this is a revolution that will dramatically change the course of our species. I just don't know that it's there. It's like the self-driving car, right? I mean, it's not really quite there yet. So we'll see. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Layla, it sounds like the tension in the Jane Edna Hunter building just keeps getting worse. And now we have a couple of workers there accused of resorting to violence. We don't know a lot, but what do we know? 
Well, we know Jacqueline Carter of Garfield Heights and Natalie Coates of Cleveland, who are family service aides with the county's Department of Children and Family Services. They've been charged with assaulting a 14-year-old boy in their care and custody at the Jane Edna Hunter building on July 7th. This is a first-degree misdemeanor. They're accused of hitting the kid multiple times on his body. Now, it's hard to tell with the limited details that were available to us what exactly gave rise to this, but it's the latest chapter in this ongoing crisis involving the Jane Edna Hunter Social Services Center, which is a county office building where kids have been housed sometimes for multiple nights because of a shortage of available placements. Reporter Caitlin Durbin has been reporting regularly on this crisis. It involves kids who leave the building to prostitute themselves, and sometimes they take other children with them to be exploited. We've we've documented violent outbursts among the children in the building directed at each other and directed at staff who are often not trained to handle those kinds of situations. Workers at the building have repeatedly asked for help and for the presence of a sheriff's deputy to protect them and, and to protect the kids from each other. They've even predicted that, you know, one of at least one of these workers has predicted that the conditions, if they don't improve, someone will end up dead in that building. I'm not making excuses for them. They can't commit violence. But this reminds me of when Cleveland police were using too much excessive force before the the consent decree. And a big part of the consent decree was you're not giving them the resources and training they need to deal Mm -hmm. with it. In this case, these workers are put into a situation they don't have training for. This was never supposed to be a building that houses kids who do resort to violence. And it's just this. I think this is the tension over there continuing to grow because the county just will not solve this problem. Right. We're hoping for a solution by the end of this year. County Executive Chris Renane said last month that he plans on converting the Metzenbaum Center, which currently is being used by the juvenile court for day treatment services. He wants to turn that into a 16-bed housing unit for the kids who we normally see in the Jane Edna Hunter building. But he, he is looking for other solutions, too, before he commits to that site. And the goal there is to develop a, what he's calling a child wellness campus that would get, provide the safe place for kids between the ages of 12 to 18 to stay while they're waiting for other resources and, and a permanent and sustainable solution is set up for them. You just have to feel bad for the for the county workers that are trying to deal with this. This was never part of the job description and they're in an untenable situation. Yeah. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lisa, we often chat before we hit the record button about the weather, and I think we'd all agree this is our second delightful summer in a row. While much of the country has experienced horrific ramifications of climate change, just look at what happened on Maui this week. Reporter Pete Krauss did some checking, and while we are right in assessing our summer, he notes the ways we are not escaping climate change. What does he say? Yeah, and actually anyone who pays attention to the weather on a regular basis has noticed these changes. Yes, Northeast Ohio summer has been very pleasant, especially compared to people in Arizona and and Southern California and other areas, but there are changes and we've certainly noticed it with rain. So we're seeing more frequent and intense rainfall. About 29% of the annual precipitation through August 7th fell in just six days 
that totaled at least one inch every day. That included nearly two inches on July 20th, and most of that fell in an hour. There are more reports of flash floods in vulnerable areas, especially West 17th at Madison, Ridge Road under I-480 and I-90 west of Cleveland. And plus, we're seeing dramatic wet, dry shifts. Remember, we had a wet winter. Uh, No counties were abnormally dry until June came, and then it was really dry. We had 21 days without rain. 78% of the state ended up having drought conditions of varying degrees. We're now down to 2%, but this caused crops to emerge late. It stressed crops from lack of rain. And so that was a situation with agriculture. Also, the prevailing winds are changing. Usually in the summer, they're from the west or the southwest. That brings in warm, moist air from the Gulf. But uh, lots of cold fronts have happened this year with northerly winds. And that brought Canadian wildfire smoke to our area. I don't know that anyone has experienced any wildfire smoke in this area in decades. We also have warmer winters. It's really hard to predict the effects of a warm winter, but we had the second warmest winter last year in state records. Columbus hit 70 degrees three times in February, but less ice coverage is a real problem for Lake Erie. If you don't have ice coverage, lake effect snow continues. Lake effect snow needs open water to happen, so we'll see more of that. We also have warmer summer nights, warming increases evaporation that prevents heat to escape you know, from the atmosphere, but that's not the case this year with these Canadian cold fronts. I just have felt that we have not had that sultry Florida style humidity that we often would get for periods mm-hmm. in the summer. It's been pretty dry and pretty pleasant. Going outside this summer almost every day has been pretty wonderful, except for the days when the smoke was thick, then it was awful. Interesting story. Check it out. It's by Pete Krause and it's on Cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Here's a blast from the past. Courtney, what's the disturbing trend we are seeing in Ohio about the coronavirus? And is it the same in the rest of the nation? Oh, man, I'm so tired of talking to COVID, but we know it's endemic and it's here to stay. And we'll be looking at these numbers for who knows how long, you know, COVID cases are climbing. Uh, we got a story from Gretchen Kudakroen looking at the cases in Ohio and and she found that for the fifth week in a row, they are on their way up. It, cases in Ohio went up from about 2,600 to nearly 3,000, and that was this week. And and this is a you know a divergence from the trends because cases have been on the decline since March, and the numbers fell as low as 1,200 in mid June. Our high point this year was way back in January at about 14,000 cases. So you think about flu season, that makes sense, but. Here we go again, another little little increase. The the total COVID case count since early 2020 has now reached, you know, almost 3.5 million. And there's been over 42,000 deaths here. I, uh, I, I've i been reading, trying to understand why, what's happening. I'm not seeing that it's a new variant. and I've, It is a new variant. See, it, but it is? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's like the E variant. I think they call it Eris, but yes. When, but didn't that emerge back in the spring? I don't know when it emerged, but that's the dominant strain right now is this new variant. Yeah, the things I've been reading, though, by the experts, they're not sure why it's spreading this summer. It's just it, it's an odd cycle, but it clearly is going up. And the new vaccine that handles that variant won't be available, I think, till September or October. And so this could go. And for 
people like me and Lisa who have never had COVID, it's got to be pretty scary. Right, Lisa? Yep. Yep. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Do we have a Marjorie Taylor Green connection to a scam that emanated from the East Palestine train wreck, Layla? This this doesn't really surprise me in the least, but what kind of surprises me is that they would pull this stunt in a region that's so heavily Republican. Um, these three guys raised nearly $149,000 from donors in the aftermath of the train derailment for a fake charity that they called the Ohio Clean Water Fund. This group claimed the money would be given to the Second Harvest Food Bank of the Mahoning Valley, but they really gave only $10,000 to the food bank and kept the rest of it. So under a settlement announced Thursday by Dave Yost's office, Isaiah Wartman and Luke Mahoney of, I think it's WAMA Strategies, W-A-M-A, must pay more than $22,000 in restitution to a local food bank and $3,000 in investigative costs and fees to Yogg's office. And Michael Peppel, the co-founder of this fake charity, agreed to pay a $25,000 civil penalty, and, and he is subject to a lifetime ban um, on starting, running, soliciting for any charity in Ohio. And this is on the heels of another $132,000 that Ohio Clean Water Fund and the other co-founder, Michael Lee, already agreed to send to the Second Harvest Food Bank. They were using text messages to solicit donations, and WAMA Strategies was their main fundraiser. So the Marjorie Taylor Green connection comes in because Wartman worked for Green as her campaign manager and as a senior advisor. Mahoney worked as a campaign staffer for U.S. Representative Elise Stefanik who's a Republican from New York, Wortman and Mahoney formed this WAMA strategies earlier this year, one day after the train derailment. But they claim that they had no idea that this was a scam, that they were bamboozled by the Ohio Clean Water Fund, and they really did think the money was going to the food bank. Hello. They they did pay it back, which you could argue is an admission of wrongdoing. So I'm not sure I give them the free ride to just say, yeah, we didn't know. We were led astray. They had a lot of money. They did give it back. It was a scam. Uh, so just interesting that, that the campaign coordinator for Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is one of the wackiest of wackos we've ever seen on the national stage, was operating in Ohio, like you said, in a very Republican area. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We're not going to get to our last story. That's it for the Friday. That's it for the week. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll be back Monday, although, Layla, I think you're taking the day off. So, Courtney, we'll be graced with your presence once again. 